Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 27. I came to, not to the rush of water or anything heavenly, but to a low, dangerous, rumbling sound. I opened my eyes. It was still night. I had fallen into a deep ravine, far below the level of the road. My back was twisted against a tree and I could barely move. A wound ached horribly on the side of my head. Again, I heard the deep rumbling from the woods. Who's there? I called. Who is it? There was no reply. I focused on the spot in the darkness, trying to make out any shape. Who would be out here in the night? Not anyone I wanted to meet. Then, I focused on a set of eyes. Eyes not human at all, but large as prayer stones. Yellow, narrow, fuming. My blood froze. Then it moved. I heard the brush crunch under its feet. The thing took a step out of the forest and came clear. Dark, hairy. Blessed Jesus Christ, it was a boar, not twenty paces away. Its yellow eyes were trained on me, inspecting me as if I were its next meal. I heard a snort, then it was deathly still. The thing was about to charge. I was certain of it. I tried to clear my head. I cannot possibly fight such a beast. With what? Its breath alone was twice mine. It could slash me to pieces with its razory tusks. My heart was pounding, the only other sound I heard other than the beast's low growl. It took another step towards me. The boar's murderous eyes never left my own, deliberate and tracking. God help me. What could I do? I couldn't flee. It would run me down in my first steps. There was no one to shout for to help. I searched for a strong tree to climb, but I didn't want to move to set it off. The beast seemed to study me, bucking its head, snorting its deadly intent. I could smell its fierce, hot breaths, the blood from past conflicts matted in its hair. I grabbed the knife in my belt. I didn't know if it would snap against the beast's hide. The boar snorted twice and flashed its teeth at me, its jowls red and dripping. I did not want to die. Not like this. Please, God, do not make me fight this thing. For him to not believe in God, he's talking to him a lot. I'm just saying, just saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. I felt so incredibly alone. I mean, I guess I talked to God too if there was nobody else there. I talked to myself and I talked to God. I do that often. I, I, sometimes I don't even know who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to myself or I'm talking to God, I just feel like I'm talking to somebody and they give me peace. Talking myself through things or talking to God. I don't know. I felt so incredibly alone. Then, with the last deep snort, the beast seemed to understand that. And it charged. All I could do was leap behind a tree, barely escaping the first violent gnash of its fearsome teeth. I stabbed wildly at it with my knife, tearing at its face and neck, doing everything I could to repel its snarling jaws. The beast lunged viciously. It came again and again. I clawed with my knife, backing around the tree. The boar's jaws ripped into my thighs and I cried out. The air emptied from my lungs. Good lord. I was pierced. I had no time to inspect the wound. The beast slammed into me again, this time goring my abdomen. I screamed in pain. I kicked at it and slashed my blade. It backed and lunged. Its teeth clamped on my thigh and it shook its head as if to tear my leg out of its socket. I kicked myself away from the boar. I tried to run, but my legs had no strength. Blood was splattered everywhere. Somehow, I limped across the clearing, my strength nearly sapped. My abdomen felt as if it were on fire. I was done here. I fell to my side and backed myself against another tree, waiting for the end to come. Beside the tree, I saw my staff. It must have toppled there in my fall. I reached for it, though it wasn't much of a weapon. I stared at the angry, snorting boar. Come at me, awful. Come at me. Finish what you started. My mind flashed to the Turk who had spared me, a world away. This time, no laughter would save the day. I held the staff like a spear. Come at me, I shouted at the boar again. Do me in. 
I'm ready. Do me in. As if to oblige, the beast made another charge. My breath was still. I offered no defense except to raise the staff with the shape flying towards me. Harnessing all of my remaining strength, I thrust the rod with all my might at its eyes. The beast let out a blood-chilling cry. I'd actually heard it. The staff stuck in one eye. The boar staggered and shook its head madly, trying to rid itself of the staff. I grabbed my knife and, with whatever strength I had, stabbed at its face and throat, at anything I could strike. Blood seeped out of its fur, each knife thrust striking home. Its growls diminished. It stumbled, still swinging its head to free the rod, while I continued to slash, tearing at its coat. The beast's blood mixed with my own. Finally, its hind legs crumpled. I took the staff and forced it deep into the boar's skull. A dying snarl came out of its awful, tooth-filled mouth. With a crash, the monster fell on its side. I just knelt there, depleted of strength, and amazed. I let out an exhausted shout. I had won. But I was badly wounded. Blood ran freely from my stomach and thigh. I had to make it out of the ravine, or I knew I would die here. Sophie's face appeared in my mind. I know I smiled. I reached out to touch her. Here's the way, she whispered. Come to me now. Chapter 28 It was quiet, like any sleeping town. The dark riders brought their panting mounts close to the edge. A few thatched cottages with post fences, animals sleeping in their sheds. That's all there was. This would be easy, mere sport for such men. The leader sniffed, shutting his visor. His helmet bore a black Byzantine cross. He had chosen only men who killed for pleasure, who hunted for spoils as others hunted for meat. They wore only the darkened armor of battle. No crests, visors down. No one knew who they were. They strapped on their weapons, war swords, axes, and maces. They looked at him, eager, thirsty, ready. Have your fun, Black Cross said, a little bit of laughter coming through his command. Just let us not forget why we're here. Whoever finds a relic will be a rich man. Now ride! The night was split asunder by the explosion of charging hooves. The clang of a warning bell sounded. Too late. The first thatched dwellings went up in flames. The sleeping town came alive. Women screamed and ran to cover their children. Aroused townspeople struggled out of their homes to protect themselves, only to be struck down by swords or trampled in the melee as the riders stormed by. These pathetic peasants, Black Cross mused. They run up and die like swatted flies, protecting their tiny clumps of shit. They think we're invading soldiers coming to take their cattle and steal their bitches. They do not even know why we're here. Fire and mayhem raging, Black Cross trotted unconcerned through the streets to the large stone home, the best in the town. Five of his riders followed. Panic sounds came from inside, a woman screaming, children being roused from bed. Break it in, Black Cross nodded to a cohort. A single axe blow shattered the door. A man in a white and blue shawl appeared in the doorway. He had long gray hair and a heavy beard. What do you want here? The cowering man asked. We've done no harm. Get out of my way, Jew, Black Cross barked. The man's wife in a wool sleeping shawl rushed out and spoke fearlessly. We are peaceful people, she said. We will give you whatever you want. Black Cross pinned the woman by her throat to the wall. Show me where it is, he demanded. Show me if you have any regard for his life. Please, the money's in the courtyard, the panicked husband whined. In the chest under the cistern. Have it. Take what you will. Search the house, Black Cross screamed at his men. Rip down every wall. Just find it. But the money. I told you. We did not come for money, filth. Black Cross leered. We're here for the jewel, Christendom's precious relic. His henchmen stormed inside. They found an old man, his arms around two cowering children. A boy, perhaps 16, already with the locks of his race, and a girl, maybe a year younger, with dark, fearful eyes. What do you mean? The father crawled on his knees. I'm a merchant. We have no jewels, no relics. Piece by piece, the house is torn apart. The raiders smashed their swords in the walls, dug with axes at stone, broken the chests and cupboards. Black Cross pulled the husband up by the throat. I will trifle no longer.
Where's the treasure? I beg you, we have no jewels, the trembling man gagged. I trade in wool. You trade in wool. Black Cross nodded, glancing at the man's son. We'll see. He took out a knife and pressed it against the boy's throat. The boy flinched, revealing a line of blood. Show me the treasure, unless you want your son to die. The hearth. Underneath the tiles on the hearth. The father bowed his head in his hands. In a rush, two of the knights ran to the fireplace and, using axes, crashed through the floor tiles, unearthing a secret space. From it, they raised a chest, inside of which were coins, necklaces, brooches of gold and silver, and finally, a gorgeous ruby the size of a coin in a gilded Byzantine-style setting. It gave off a luminous glow. The knight held it aloft. You have no idea what you hold, the Jewish man blinked back tears. Don't I? Black Cross grinned. It is the seal of Paul. Your race is unworthy to even hold it. You'll steal from our Lord no more. I did not steal it. It is you that does that. It was sold to me. Sold, not stolen. Black Cross's eyes glittered. He turned back to the sun. Then it is only a small loss compared to what your race has taken from us. In the same instant, he pushed his knife into the boy's gut. A gasp emerged from the boy. His eyes grew wide and blood dribbled from his mouth. All the while, Black Cross smirked. Nifrim! The merchant and his wife screamed. They tried to rush to their son but were held back by other raiders. Burn the place, Black Cross said. Their seed is dead. They can foul the earth no more. What of the daughter? A knight inquired. Black Cross yanked her up and looked at the girl measuringly. She was a pretty specimen. He ran his gloved hand along the smooth skin of her cheek. Such a pretty pelt, wool merchant. I wonder what it's like to be wrapped in such a cloth. Why don't you tell me? Please, you have taken everything, the father begged. Leave us our child. I'm afraid not, Black Cross shook his head. I must have her later. And no doubt the Duke's mule cleaner will want to do the same. Take her with us. He threw the girl to another night. She was carried out of the house, screaming in horror and fear. Don't be so sad, Jew, Black Cross addressed the sobbing man. He tossed a coin to him from the chest of treasure. As you say, I did not steal your daughter. I buy her. Chapter 29 Is he dead? A voice crept through the haze. A woman's voice. I opened my eyes, but I couldn't make out a thing. Only a shifting blur. I don't, I don't know, my lady, another said, but his wounds are grave. He doesn't look far from gone. Such unusual hair, remarked the first. I blinked, my brain slowly starting to clear. It was as if there were a shimmering veil reflecting my sight. Was I dead? There was a lovely face leaning over me. Yellow hair, braided densely, tumbling from under a brocaded purple cloak. She smiled. It warmed me like the sun. Sophie, I muttered. I reached to touch her face. You are hurt, replied the woman, her voice like the delicate trill of a bird. I'm afraid you must take me for someone else. My body felt no pain. Is this heaven? I asked. The woman smiled again. If heaven is a world where all wounded knights resemble vegetables, then yes, it must be. I felt her hands cradle my head. I blinked again. It was not Sophie, but someone lovely, speaking with the accent of the North, Paris. I still live, I uttered with a sigh. For the moment, yes, but your wounds are serious. We must get you to a physician. Are you from here? Do you have a family? I tried to focus on her questions. It was all too fuzzy and hurtful. I just said, no. Are you an outlaw? The second woman's voice intoned from above. I struggled to see a lavishly robed lady, clearly royal, atop a stunning white palfrey. I assure you, madam, I said, doing my best to smile. I am benign. I saw my tunic matted with blood, regardless of how I look. Sharp pangs of pain now lanced my stomach and thigh. I had no strength. With a gasp, I fell back once more. Where do you head, Monsieur Rouge? The golden-haired maiden asked. I had no idea where I was, 
or how far I had traveled. Then I remembered the boar. I head to Triel, I said. To Triel, she exclaimed, even if we could take you, I fear you will die before you reach Triel, the maiden said with concern. Take him? The older lady questioned from above. Look at him. He's covered with the blood of who knows whom. He smells of the forest. Leave him, child. He'll be found by his own kind. I wanted to laugh. After all I had been through, my life was being bargained for by a couple of bickering nobles. I replied in my finest accent. No need to fret, madame. My squire should be arriving at any moment. Then the young maiden winked at me. He seems harmless. You are harmless, aren't you? She looked into my eyes. A lovelier face I hadn't seen in a long time. Only to you. I smiled faintly. See, she said, I vouch for him. She tried to lift me, appealing to two guards in bucket helmets and green tunics for help. They glanced towards her lady, the older of the women. If you must, the grand lady sighed. She waved and the guards responded, but he is your charge, and if your concern is so great, child, you will not mind giving up your horse. I tried to push myself to my feet, but my strength was not there. Do not struggle, red hair, the blonde maiden said. One of the accompanying guards, a big, hulking moor, lifted me by the arms. The lady was right. My wounds were severe. If I slipped back into unconsciousness, I didn't know if I would ever wake up again. Who saves me? I asked her, so I'll know who to bless in heaven should I pass on. Your own smile saves you, redhead, the maiden laughed. But should the Lord not feel as favorably... I am called Emily. Chapter 30 I awoke, this time with a sense of peace and the warmth of a fire about me. I found myself in a comfortable bed, in a large room with stone walls. A bowl of water sat on the wooden table to my right. Above me, a bearded man in a scarlet robe shot a satisfied grin at a portly priest at his side. He wakes, Lewis. You can go back to the abbey now. It seems you are out of a job. The priest lowered his flabby face in front of mine. He shrugged. You have done well, August. On the body. But there's also the matter of the soul. Perhaps there is something this blood-spotted stranger would like to confess. I wet my lips, then answered for myself. I'm sorry, Father. If it's a confession you're looking for, you might get a better one out of the boar that attacked me. Certainly a better meal. This made the physician laugh. Back among us for only a second, Lewis, and he sized you up. The priest scowled. It was clear he didn't like being the brunt of mockery. He threw on a floppy hat. Then I'm off. The priest left, and the kindly-looking doctor sat down beside me. Don't mind him. We had a bet. Who got you? He or I? I raised myself up on my elbows. I'm glad to have been the subject of your sport. Where am I? In good hands, I assure you. My reputation is that I've never lost a patient who wasn't truly sick. And where am I? He shrugged. You, sir, I'm afraid, are truly very sick. I forced a weak smile. I'm at the place, doctor. Where am I taken? The physician gently patted my shoulder. I knew that, boy. You're in Bore. Bore? My eyes widened in shock. Boré was among the most powerful duchies in France, three times the size of Triel. Boré was also a four-day ride from Triel, but north. How had I ended up here? How long have I been in Boré? I finally asked. Four days here. Two more along the way, the physician said. You cried out many times. And what did I say? Auguste wrung out a cloth from the bowl and placed it across my forehead. That your heart is not whole, though not from any boar wound. You carry a great burden. I did not try to disagree. My Sophie lay somewhere, at Triel, and Triel was a week away on foot. I still felt her alive. I pushed myself up. You have my thanks for tending my wounds, Auguste. But I have to go. "'Whoa!' the physician held me back. "'You are not yet well enough to go. "'And do not thank me. "'I merely applied the salve and cauterized the wounds. "'It is the Lady Emily who deserves your thanks.' "'Emily. "'Yes.' 
Through the haze of my memory, I brought back her face. I had thought she was Sophie. All at once, flashes of my journey here came to me. The moor constructed a harness for me. The lady gave up her own mount for me and walked behind. Without her, Pilgrim, the doctor said, you would have died. You are right. I truly owe her thanks. Who is this lady, August? A soul who cares, and a lady in waiting at the court. Court? My eyes bolted wide. What court do we speak of? You said you were commanded to my care. By whom? Who is it that you serve? Why, the Duchess Anne, he replied, wife of Stephen, Duke of Boray, who was away on the crusade, and second cousin to the king. Every nerve in my body seemed to leap at attention. I cannot believe it. I was in the care of a cousin to the king of France. The doctor smiled. You have done yourself well, boar slayer. You rest in her castle now. Chapter 31 I sat up in bed, confused and shocked. I did not deserve this. I was no knight, no noble, just a commoner. And a lucky one at that. Fortunate not to have been ripped to shreds by a beast. My ordeal came back to me, my wife and child. It had been more than a week since I set out to find Sophie. Your care is most appreciated, doctor, but I must leave. Please thank my gracious hostess for me. I got up out of bed, but managed to limp no farther than a couple painful steps. There was a knock at the door. Augusts went to see who was there. You may thank the lady yourself, the doctor said. She has come. It was Emily, adorned in a dress of linen gilded with golden borders. God, I had not been imagining her. She was as lovely as a vision from my dreams, except her eyes shimmered soft and green. I see our patient rises, Emily exclaimed, seemingly delighted. How's our red today, August? His ears are not injured, nor is his tongue, the doctor said, prodding at me. I didn't know whether to bow or kneel. I did not speak to nobles directly unless addressed, but something made me look into her eyes. I cleared my throat. <clears throat> I'll be dead if not for you, lady. There is no way I can express my thanks. I did what anyone would do. Besides, having vanquished your boar, what a shame it would have been if you had become dinner of the next pest to stumble by. Augusta pushed over a stool and Emily sat down. If you must show gratitude, you can do so by permitting me a few questions. Any, I said. Please ask. First, an easy one. What is your name, redhead? My name is Hugh, lady. I bowed my head. Hugh DeLuke. And you were on your way to Triel, Hugh DeLuke, when you encountered the boorish boar. I was, my lady, though the doctor has informed me that my direction was slightly askew. So it would seem, Lady Emily smiled. This surprised me. I had never met a noble with a very keen sense of humor, unless it was cruel humor. And on this journey, you sat out alone, with no food, or water, or proper clothes. I felt a lump in my throat, not from nerves, but because of what must have seemed my enormous stupidity. I was in a hurry, I said. A hurry, Emily nodded with polite jest. But it seems, if I recall my mathematics, that no matter how fast you traveled, be it the wrong direction... It would only widen the distance to your goal, no? I felt like an idiot in front of this woman who had saved me. I'm sure I blushed. In a hurry and confused, I replied. I would say, she widened her eyes, and the purpose of such haste and confusion, if you don't mind. All at once, my being ill at ease shifted. This was not a game, and I was not a toy for amusement, no matter how much I owed her. Emily's expression shifted as well, as if she sensed my unease. Please know I do not mock you. You cried out in anguish many times during the trip. I know you carry a heavy weight. You may be no knight, but you are surely on a mission. I bowed my head. All the lightness from the moment fled from me. How could I speak of such horrors? To this woman who did not know me. My throat went dry. It is true. I do have a mission, lady, but I cannot tell of it. Please tell, sir, 
I couldn't believe it. She addressed me as sir. You were troubled. I do not belittle you at all. Perhaps I can help. I'm afraid you cannot help, I said and bowed my head. You have helped too much already. You may trust me, sir. How can I prove it more than I already have? I smiled. She had me there. Just know, then, that these are not the tales of a noble, the kind that you are no doubt used to hearing. I do not seek entertainment, she replied, her eyes firmly on mine. My experience with those high-born had always taught me to beware of their taxes and random killing and total indifference to our plight. But she seemed different. I could see compassion in her eyes. I felt it at that first glance as I lay by the road near death. I'll tell it to you, lady. You have earned that. I only hope it does not upset you. I assure you, Hugh, Lady Emily said with a smile. If you have not already noticed, you will find my tolerance for the upsetting to be quite high. Chapter 32 So I told her everything of Sophie and our village, of my journey to the Holy Land, the terrible fighting there. Of my moment with the Turk, how I was saved, freed, to come back, to see Sophie again. Then I told Emily of the horrible truth that I have found upon my return. My voice cracked and my eyes filled with tears as I spoke. It was why I had been wandering the woods like a madman before they had come upon me. Why I had to get Triel. All the while, Emily seemed riveted by my tale, never once interrupting. I knew that much of what I had said must have brushed up against the fantasies of her upbringing. Yet never once did she react as a spoiled noble. She did not question my desertion from the army, nor take offense in my ire towards Norcross and Baldwin. And when I came to why I so desperately needed to get to Triel, her eyes glistened. Indeed, I understand, Hugh. She leaned forward, placing a hand upon mine. I see that you've been truly wronged. You must go to Triel and find your wife. But what do you intend to do? Go there as one man? Without arms or access to the Duke's circle? Baldwin is well known here for what he is. A self-serving goat who sucks his own duchy dry. But what will you do? Call him out on the field of battle? Challenge him? You'll only get yourself tossed in a cell or, or killed. You speak like Sophie would have, I said. But even if it seems crazy, I have to try. I have no choice in this. Then I will help you, Hugh, Emily whispered, if you let me. I looked at her, both confused and overwhelmed by her trust and resolve. Why do you do this for me? You're highborn yourself. You attend the royal court. I told you the first time, Hugh DeLuke. It is your smile that saved you. I think not, I said, and dared to hold my gaze on her. You could have left me on the road. My troubles would have died along with me. Emily averted her eyes. I will tell you, but not now. Yet I have told you everything. This is my price, Hugh. If you'd like to shop around, I can have you deliver back where I found you. I bowed my head and smiled. She was funny when she wished to be. Your price is agreeable, Lady Emily. I am truly grateful, whatever your reason. Good, she said. So first we must start work on a pretext for you. A way to get you in. What is it you do well, other than that keen sense of direction I saw? I laughed at her barb, sharp as it was. I am one of those with skills abundant, but talents none. We'll see, Emily said. What did you do in your town before the war? We owned an inn. Sophie looked after the food and beds, and I, like most innkeepers, you poured the ale and kept the patrons entertained. How'd you know such a thing, I asked. No matter. And during the war? From what I've seen, you were certainly not a scout. I fought. I learned to fight quite well, actually, but I was told I was always able to keep friends amused with my stories and their minds off the fighting. In the most worrisome of times, they always requested my tales. I told her how I had grown up, traveling the countryside, reciting verses and profane songs of the Goliard, and how after the war, I made my way home entertaining the ends of the jongleur. 
Maybe I have a talent after all. A jongleur, Emily repeated. It's a modest one, but I've always had the skill to make new friends, I smiled, to let her know of whom I was speaking. Emily blushed and stood up. She straightened her dress and produced a demure look. You must rest now, Hugh DeLuke. Nothing can happen until your wounds have healed. In the meantime, I must go. A worry shot through me. Please, lady, I hope I have not offended you. Offended me, she exclaimed. Not at all. She broke into a most wonderful smile. In fact, your vast talents have given me a splendid idea. Chapter 33 The following afternoon, Emily knocked on the door of the large bedchamber in the royal couple's section of the castle. The Duchess Anne was at a table, overseeing a group of ladies-in-waiting at work threading a tapestry. You called for me, my lady, said Emily. Yes, Anne replied. The quintet of women stopped work and looked up for a sign to leave. Please, stay, she said. I'll speak to Emily in the dressing room. The Duchess motioned her into the next room, adjacent to the bedroom, where there was a large dressing table, bowls of perfume water, and a mirror. Anne sat on a stool. I wish to speak to your health of your new red squire, she said. He recovers well, Emily replied, and please, he is not my squire. In fact, he is already married and seeks to find his wife. His wife? And that's where he was heading when we found him so neatly trussed in the woods? A curious courtship, Anne smiled. But now that he is well, not quite well, Emily cut in, but now that he recovers, it is fitting that he should be on his way. Anyway, the doctor tells me he has a will to leave. He has suffered great injury, madam, which he seeks to right. The owner of his offense is Baldwin of Triel. Baldwin. Anne grimaced as if she has swallowed spoiled wine. Surely Baldwin is no friend to this court, but this man's affairs, lowly as they are, are no concern of ours. Your heart is admirable, Emily. You have surpassed what anyone might expect of you. Now, I want you to let him leave. I will not shoo him away, madam, Emily stood tall. I want to help him right his wrong. Help him? Anne looked shocked. Help him what? Regain his title? His honor? A set of clothes? Please, madam, every man deserves his honor, regardless of his rank in life. This man has been horribly wronged. Anne came up to her. As she was in her living quarters and not presiding at court, her dark brown hair was combed long and over her shoulders. She was just 30, but in many ways she was like a mother to Emily. My sweet Emily, where did you get such notions? You know well, my lady. You know why I came to be here. Why I left Paris and my own troubles there. Anne placed her hand tenderly on Emily's shoulder. She did love the girl. You are as caring child as you are rash. Nonetheless, as soon as he is ready to travel, he must be off. If my husband were to hear of this, he'd come back from the crusade and thrash me blue. This red, does he have a profession? Some skill other than boar fighting? I am teaching him a profession, starting today, Emily replied. But not for here, I hope. We are overemployed with hangers on as it is. No, not for here, my lady. Once he learns what I have to teach... He will be on his way. He has a wife to find. He loves her dearly. Chapter 34 I rested for three more days until most of my wounds had healed. Then Emily knocked on the door, seeming excited. She inquired as to my health. Are you able to walk? Yes, of course. I hopped out of bed to show her, though still a bit impaired. That'll do. She seemed pleased. Then come along with me. She marched to the door and I hurried, with a slight limp, to keep up with her. She led me through the halls, wide and arched and adorned with beautiful tapestries, and then down a steep flight of some stone stairs. Where are we going? I asked, pushing to keep up. It felt good to be out of my sick room. To view your new pretext, I hope, she said. We traveled to a different part of the castle. I had never been so close to the abode of royals before. On the main floor, there were large rooms with long rows of tables and huge hearths, guarded by uniformed soldiers at every door. Knights milled around their casual tunics, trading stories and rolling dice. Mounted torches lit the halls. 
Then we passed the kitchen with an inviting smell of garlic in the air, maids and porters shuffling around, casts of wine and ale. Still we traveled, down a narrow corridor leading beneath the ground. Here the walls were a coarsely laid stone. The air grew stale and damp. We were in some sort of keep now, in the womb of the castle. Where was Emily taking me? What did she mean by my new pretext? Finally, when the halls were so ill-lit and dank that the only living thing must be some slumbering beast, Emily stopped in front of a large wooden door. My new pretext is the mole, I said with a laugh. Do not be rude, she said and knocked. Come in, groaned a voice from deep inside. Come, come, hurry before I change my mind. Curious, I followed Emily as we stepped into a cool room. It was more of a cell, or a dungeon, but large and candlelit. On the walls were shelves filled with what I took to be props and toys. In the rear, on an ornately carved chair, sat a hunched man in a red tunic, green tights, and a patchwork skirt. He lowered a yellowed eye towards Emily. Come in, auntie. May I have a lick? Just a lick will do. Oh, shut up, Norbert, Emily retorted, though not crossly. This is the man that I spoke of. His name is Hugh. Hugh, this is Norbert, the Lord's fool. Egad. Norbert leapt out of his chair. He was squatting gnome-like, yet he moved with startling speed. He sprang up to me, almost smothering my red hair with his huge eyes, placing a hand on my head, then swiftly pulling it back. Do you intend to burn me, ma'am? What is he? Torture man. What he is, is no fool, Norbert, Emily cautioned. I think you'll have your work cut out for you. I looked at Emily with consternation. My pretext is a jester, my lady? And why not, Emily replied. You say you have a knack for amusing people. What better role? Norbert informs me that the jester of Triel is as old as vinegar. And his wit even more sour, the jester croaked and that he has lost the favor of your liege there, Baldwin. It would seem no great feat for a youthful up-and-comer like yourself to gain his ear. Easier, I would think, than storming his castle in a fit of rage. I started to stammer. I had just come back from the war, where I fought as bravely as any man. I was looking to avenge a misery that cuts my core. I did not think of myself as a hero. But a jester? I can't dispute your reasoning, lady, but... I am no fool. No siree. I'm gonna live to be 103. I take safety seriously cause I'm no fool. Sorry. Sorry. All y'all folks from the 80s, you know what I'm singing about. If you were on Disney at that time, you know what I'm singing about. Cause that was Jiminy Cricket. I can't help it. If I see the words, I'm no fool, that pops up. Because then after he said that, they would always show some goofus and galleon type stuff where a fool would actually do some foolish stuff. It was almost as bad as the old I'm about to have an accident commercials from Canada. Yeah, Google them. Look them up. YouTube them. They have it. It's just YouTube. I'm about to have an accident. Oh, they're horrific. We had a great time making fun of them because we didn't care. Oh, you think it's a natural thing to act this way? The gnome light man hopped up to me. Unpracticed? Not learned? You think, Carrot Top, he stroked my face with his rough hands and batted his wide eyes, that I was never as young and as fair as you. He sprang back, narrowing his gaze. Just because you played a fool, boy, doesn't mean you have to be thick inside. The lady's plan is well conceived, if you have the knack to carry it out. Nothing motivates me more than the will to find my wife, I insisted. I didn't say the will, boy. I said the knack. The lady said you have a way about yourself, that you fancy yourself a jongleur. Jongleurs. Oh, they can soften the blood of blushing maidens and patrons drunk on ale. But the real trick is, can you walk into a room filled with scoundrels and schemers and make an ill-tempered king smile? I looked at Emily. She was right. I did need some way to gain access to Baldwin's castle. Sophie, if she was alive, wouldn't be dressed up in the royal court, would she? I need to snoop around, gain some trust. Perhaps I can learn, I replied. Chapter 35 
Learn? Norbert shook his head and bellowed laughter. Learning would take years. How would you learn in a short time to do this? The gnome took a lit candle, waved his bare hand through the flame, not once crying out, and then snapped his fingers. And the flame was snuffed as if by magic. It's what comes natural that I need to know. So tell me, what do you do? Do, I muttered. Do, the jester snapped. What kind of student have you brought me, auntie? Has a rock hit his head? What do you do? Juggle? Tumble? Fall down? I looked around. I spotted a staff leaning against a table, roughly the same size as mine. I winked at Norbert. I can do this. I placed one end of the staff in the palm of my hand, balancing it there, and then lightly transferred it to a single finger. For a full minute, it stood straight on end. Oh, that's good, Norbert crooned. But can you do this? He snatched the staff from me. In a flash, he balanced it just as I had upon his index finger. Then, with almost no hesitation, he flung it in the air and caught it as before on the same finger. Then again, on only one finger. Or this. He smirked and began to twirl the staff so fast that it looked as if six pairs of hands were twirling it. I could not even follow its path. Then he brought it to a stop and handed it to me in the same motion. Let me see you do that. I cannot, I admitted. Then this, perhaps. He winked at me with a bulging eye. The lady said you were sprightly. In a motion to defy my eyes, this squat, curved man spun into a complete forward somersault, then backwards again, landing precisely where he had started. What about jokes, then? The lady said you could make me laugh. You must know some fabulous jokes. I know a few, I said. Norbert folded his arms. So, go ahead, boy. Ball me over. Make me laugh until I piss myself. Now I was eager to take the dare, eager to show the jester up. This I could surely do. I thought through my best inventory. There's one about the peasant who is so lazy that as he watched the gold coin drop from the money bag of a knight riding by, Know it! Norbert interrupted. He says to his friend, If he comes back the same way, this might just be our lucky day. Then there's the one about the traveler in the whorehouse, I began. A traveler's walking down the road. Know it! The jester snapped again. The sign says, congratulations, you've just been screwed. I went through two other tales and never failed to stir a laugh. Know it! He said to both. He seemed to know them all. Emily held back a laugh. So that's it? That's your entire repertoire? The jester shook his head. Can you at least rhyme? A dour king cannot ignore, refusedly, a spicy tale about his wife if it's told amusedly. This stuff is easy, right? Hump your back, hop around like an ape, and everyone rolls over in stitches? Come on, Reg, you must have something decent. You want a pretext? Well, I want to be a mentor. I want to be a mentor. He pranced around and whined like a spoiled child. You know... Maybe on second thought, you have an easier time storming Baldwin's castle than making them laugh. In a fit of vexation, I searched the room. This was no sport to me. No stupid audition. This was about the fate of my wife. Then, in the corner of the jester's cell, I spotted a ball and chain. That, I pointed. What? Want to play catch? Norbert asked haughtily. No, jester. Fetch me the chain. I remember something I had seen on the crusade. A captured Saracen did a trick to amuse his captors. It worked so well, they kept him alive. Bind me with it, I said. Wrap it all the way around, tight as you can. I will extricate myself. This brought a worried look from Emily. The chain was heavy. Wound too tight, it could squeeze the air out of a man. You're poison, Norbert shrugged. He went over and dragged the heavy chain back to me. I took several deep breaths, as I had seen the Saracen do when he performed the trick. Then the jester began to rap. Slowly, heavily, the chain squeezed me. I lifted my arms and he wrapped it around my shoulders, and for good luck, between my legs. Your Rubicum friend has a knack to kill himself, Norbert chuckled. Please be careful, Emily said. I pushed out my chest expansively as I could as the jester circled it with the chain. I had to enlarge myself. 
I had to hold my breath. I had seen this done. I had questioned the Turk about it myself. I only hoped I could recreate the effect now. Time's a-wasting, Norbert said after the chain was secure. He stood back. The links felt heavy on my shoulders. Slowly, I released the captured air from my lungs. The slightest wiggle room developed around my chest. It was only a finger's breadth or two. Then I was able to shift my shoulders back and forth, then gradually my arms. Every grueling minute advanced like an hour. The weight of the chains pressed me to the floor. My hands were pinned behind my back, but finally I pulled one free. I twisted it like a snake through an opening up around my shoulders. Emily gasped. The jester looked on, finally interested in me. It took all of my strength to get an arm free. My stomach and legs still ached from the board's attack. Each exertion was grueling, but gradually, with the arm free, I was able to unwrap the chain. From between my legs, from under my arms, from around my chest, layer after layer came off. Then I freed my other arm. As I kicked off the final loop, Emily screeched a happy cry. I doubled over, drenched in sweat. I looked up at my mentor. Norbert drummed his fingers along the side of his face. He smiled at Emily. I think we can work with that. Chapter 36 I studied with Norbert for nearly a fortnight, until my wounds finally healed completely. My days were spent juggling, tumbling, and watching him perform in front of the court, and my nights with the telling and retelling of jokes and rhymes. Step by step, I learned the jester's trade. Much of it came easily to me. I had been a jongleur and was used to entertaining, and I had always been agile. We practiced four flips and handstands. In return, I taught him the trick with the chain. A hundred times, Norbert held out his arm like a bar at waist height while I strained to flip my body over it. At first, I hit my head on the straw mat again and again and groaned in pain. You find new ways to injure yourself, Red, my mentor would say, shaking his head. Then slowly, surely, my confidence began to grow. I began to clear Norbert's arm, though sometimes falling to my seat. On my last day, I made it over, my feet landing in the precise spot from where I had sprung. I met his eyes. Norbert's face lit up in a monumental smile. You'll do all right, he nodded. At last, my education was complete. There was an urgency to things. The image of Sophie was never far from my thoughts. If I had any hope of finding her alive, I had to go. Now. At the end of our final session, Norbert dragged over a heavy wooden trunk. Open it, Hugh. It's a gift from me. I lifted the top and pulled out a set of folded clothes. Green leggings and red tunic. A floppy pointed cap. A colorful patchwork skirt. Emily made it, the jester said proudly. But to my design. I looked at the jester's costume warily. Norbert grinned. Afraid to play the fool, huh? Your pride's your enemy then, not Baldwin. I hesitated. I knew I had to play the role for Sophie, but it was hard to see myself wearing this outfit. I held the tunic up to me, sizing it against my chest. Put it on then, Norbert insisted, smacked me on the shoulder. You'll be a chip off the old block. I removed a set of bells from the trunk. For the cap, said Norbert. No liege wants to be snuck up on by a fool. The uniform I suppose I had to wear, but there was no way I could see myself tinkling about. These I must leave with you. No bells? The jester exclaimed. No clubfoot? No hunch of the spine? Again, he slapped my shoulders. You are indeed the new breed. I put aside my own tunic and leggings and slipped into the jester's outfit. Piece by piece, I felt a new confidence take over my body. I had worn the robes of a young gulliard, the garb of a soldier in the crusade. Now this. I looked at myself up and down and broke into a wide smile. I felt a new man. I was ready. Brings tears to my eyes, Norbert Fang growing misty. The lack of a limp bothers me some. A jester needs a good strut. Oh, but you will appeal to the ladies. I sprang into a forward flip, stuck it, and bowed with pride. You were done then, Hugh, the jester said. He tugged at my tunic and skirt to adjust the fit. 
just one thing more. It is not enough, boy, to simply make them laugh. Any fool can make a man laugh. Just fall on your face. The mark of a true jester is to gain the trust of the court. You may speak in rhyme or in gibberish for all I care, but somehow you must touch something true. It is not enough to win your lord's laughter, lad. You must also win his ear. I'll win Baldwin's ear, I promised. Then I'll cut it off and bring it back to you. Good. We'll make a soup of it, the jester roared. He pulled my hand soundly, as if trying to force me off my mark, then looked at me with some welling of his eyes. You are sure of this, Hugh? Of going to all this risk? You will be ashamed to waste this valuable teaching on a corpse. You're sure your wife lives? I feel it with all my heart. I looked into his eyes. He raised his bushy brows and smiled. So go then, lad. To the cells. Find your beloved. You are a dreamer, boy, but yikes. What good jester isn't? He winked and stuck out his tongue. <laughs> Give her a lick for me. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook Leave a review on Spotify uh, Leave a review on Podchaser Copy and paste that into the Good Pods app And then copy and paste that into the Apple Podcast app You can donate to the show At patreon.com Slash single simulcast Or at buymeacoffee.com Slash sscast Or on the Good Pods app You can leave a tip in the tip jar Thanks so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this feat. This is Single Simulcast.